you can open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you're not there, 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is a message for all of the men in our church. It is a message for fathers, appropriately, on this Father's Day. But it is especially a message for Brother Lopez, and I believe that is why we are looking at this particular text this morning, because it is Brother Lopez that we are ordaining to be a pastor of this church this morning. And while this message is immediately a charge to Brother Kevin to be a man of God, I think you'll see it is ultimately a message for all of us, because it not only shows what you, as a member of this church, are to expect of your pastors, but it shows a pattern for being a person, man or woman, anyone who would follow Jesus. It shows you a pattern for how you should be sold out to God's will and ways. Let's stand together and read our text from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. Paul writes this, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be glory and eternal dominion. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we exalt you as the holy, almighty Eternal God and Father, the creator of all things, you are the source of all being, you are the source of all the good things we have and enjoy. We love you and we thank you. We thank you for especially our brother Kevin this morning that you have brought here to our church along with his wife Veronica and their wonderful family. And we thank you for your work in their life. We thank you for every man in this church, especially the fathers, that you have uh, even those that you have regenerated and are now sanctifying. and We ask that this morning, out of your word, you would do what you must to make us men and women of God, to make us people who love Jesus more than we did before, Lord, and, and serve you faithfully. We pray, Lord, for uh, our brother Kevin, that you would um, bless him through the sermon, that you would remind him of his charge to... Be a man of God and what that means. And we pray for us as a church that we would do our part to encourage our brother to faithfully pursue your calling in his life. This we ask in the name of Jesus, our wonderful Savior. Amen. Who will speak for God? Last Thursday, we were chatting with many different folks from many different walks of life during the street fair. And I was reminded, as probably many of you were, that this world is very loud. The world is very loud. The culture we live in is very loud. Shouting to us in our music. Shouting to us 
through the internet, through all the mediums of, of entertainment that we have, you can no longer go to a sporting event and attend that sporting event without being in some way confronted with some of our culture's idea about sin, God, love, and equality. Uh, you will have our culture's own redefinition confronting you. We are con- constantly being bombarded with these subliminal messages concerning things which directly contradict the Word of God. The problem is most people don't even know that. They don't even realize that what they are being confronted with is something that contradicts the Bible, even if they cared. For instance, our culture is adamant there is no personal, infinite, absolute God. And they're equally, get this, this is a culture that is hardly sure about anything, but they're equally sure that Jesus Christ is not the only way of salvation. But you can choose any way you like. The world is very loud about that. Truth has fallen in the street, like Isaiah 59, 14 has said. So who will speak for God? Our text begins, But flee from these things, you man of God. Paul is here, the author. He is addressing Timothy by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Timothy had a Jewish mother who faithfully taught to him the Hebrew Scriptures. I say that because it is near certain that Timothy would have understood the significance of this title by which Paul has addressed him, Man of God. Timothy would have known what that meant. This title has a rich usage in the Old Testament. It was often used to describe the prophet of God, one who spoke for God, one who represented God to man, God to the culture. We find this title used first of Moses, It's used of Samuel, it's used of Elijah, it's used many times of Elisha, it's used for David, among many others. These were men uniquely devoted to God. They spoke God's words. They were God's ambassadors to this earth. And the the fundamental idea then behind this title, Man of God, was that the man of God, God's people recognized, was one who spoke for God. Unfortunately, many who claim to speak for God in our culture Don't live for God. And that's a problem, isn't it? That's a problem. If there's probably any reason why many people are turned off to the church of Jesus Christ, it's because of what people have done, what people have uh, said or done in the name of God. But you see, God doesn't want you to speak for him if you don't live for him. In Psalm 50, verse 16 God says to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Who are you to speak for me, God says. You don't live for me, you don't speak for me. Yes, this world needs the word of God more than ever. But who will speak for God? Who will speak for God? The thrust of Paul's message to Timothy, is that one must be a man of God before one can speak for God. One must be God's man to speak for God. And Paul will give us four stipulations, four stipulations for the man of God, how to be a man of God. First, the man of God must flee from sin's allurements. Look at verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God. What? must the man of God flee? 
When Paul says, but flee from these things, in verse 11, he's immediately referring to, uh, or referring back to what he's just described in verses 9 and 10, where he says, those who want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. He's talking about preachers. He's talking about men of God, in quotations. Those who claim to be God's man and speak for him, but they want to be rich. That's why they're doing what they're doing. And verse 10, he says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Boy, don't we know that. We've seen that in our world. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. When Paul addresses Timothy, but you, man of God, he's drawing a strong contrast between Timothy as God's man who will speak for God and these who claim to speak for God, but they are nothing more than charlatans. They are hirelings. And Paul says, flee from these things. That is, flee greed. Don't be in the ministry for money. The man of God must never minister for money. Now that's not to say that God's man shouldn't be or couldn't be compensated monetarily. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul actually said the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And if you've never uh, worked hard at preaching and teaching, maybe you don't realize that it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And so Paul's saying there's nothing wrong. In fact, it is uh, this sort of a man is worthy of being compensated for his labor in the word, in the ministry. But here's a fact. Many ministers are doing what they're doing because of the money. They're not in the ministry to help people. They're in the ministry to really help themselves. And people are a means, perhaps, to that end. And this is nothing new. 2 Peter 2.15 describes teachers who, forsaking the right way, have gone astray and have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. You know who Balaam was? He's one of these first classic examples in the Bible of a prophet for hire. A prophet who did what he did, said what he said, for money. That was his God. He was a hireling. And the litmus test for any hireling is that he is unwilling to preach whatever would compromise his financial or material security. He won't preach everything faithfully in this book because he knows if he did, there would be people out that door in a hurry. They'd be going through the windows. People don't want to stick around and hear the truth. They can't handle it. And the problem with many churches today is there's no man of God in them to lead them. Who will speak for God? Not these hirelings. They won't live for him. They won't faithfully preach his truth. So we have churches all over this country being run by hirelings, giving people a very false image of God, a false idea of what Christianity in the Bible is all about. Like the Levite of Judges chapters 17 and 18, he was willing to serve Micah for 10 shekels and a shirt, if you know the story, until the tribe of Dan comes along and offers him a higher bid. That's like many preachers of the day. They're willing to serve God's people until the higher offer comes along and there goes their service. It goes to the highest bidder. So Paul says, flee these things. Flee greed. You can't be in the ministry for the money. And then flee lust, of course, because Paul later uses the same word to flee in another letter to the same man, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.22. And he says, now flee from youthful lusts. 
and first Corinthians 6.18, Paul would say, flee immorality. A classic example of what this means is found in Joseph. Genesis 39, Joseph was a man of God. He spoke for the Lord. He represented the Lord. And uh, yet he was all alone, found himself as a slave in the house of a, in a foreign land to a man named Potiphar, an Egyptian. And Potiphar had a wife. I'm sure she was very attractive. And she was drawn to Joseph. She was attracted to him. And she urged him incessantly to lie with her and have an illicit relationship, to commit adultery. And one time she actually grabbed Joseph when no one else was in the house. And we are told he fled from her. Joseph fled. A man of God must flee. Now let's understand, Joseph was not a eunuch. Joseph would later marry a woman named Asenath, and he would have children with her. Joseph certainly would have been tempted. There would have been a temptation, a very strong temptation, but stronger than the sensual temptation was his strong desire to please his God. Now that's not always easy, but that is the choice the man of God will make because he is devoted to his God. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Paul will say, flee from idolatry. Well, we see this command to flee throughout the New Testament. This is even a sin of the heart. The man of God, if he's going to be a man of God, must flee these things. A man of God must flee all of sin's allurements. But how must the man of God flee? Well, the word flee is fugo in the Greek from which we get our word fugitive. That is to say, the man of God must be a fugitive constantly on the run from sin. In Acts 27, this word is used to describe how sailors are escaping. They are fleeing a wrecked ship, a sinking ship. You get the idea? This is fleeing what is otherwise certain destruction. And this command to flee should tell you something. That there are temptations in your life. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how serious you say I am for God or whatever. Uh, this temptation should concern you that you are vulnerable to sin. There are certain places, Christian, you shouldn't be. There are certain people you probably shouldn't stick around. And if you do, you will be destroyed. Jesus would put it this way. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul would say in Romans 14, he would say, make no provision for the flesh. Or Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. Flee. But let me give you an illustration. In 1943, the U.S. began daylight bombing raids over Germany, over certain Nazi sites. And this was very dangerous because bombers back then couldn't go near fast like they could today. And in daylight, the Germans could see the Americans very clearly. And many were shot down. In fact, some of these missions were just near suicidal. So just imagine then, for sake of illustration, that you are in a bomber crew. You're piloting one of these large, bulky, slow B-17s over Germany. And you, you get there, and there's just flak everywhere. The sky is full of tracers. Everything's exploding. But you're able to drop your bombs, and you're now able to hightail home. But your co-pilot says to you, hey, look down there. There's the Bremen Cathedral. Let's dive in for a closer look. Let's circle around. Are you kidding me? That's not bravery. That's not daring fortitude. That is insanity. That's total oblivion. That's foolishness. If you stick around, you'll get shot to bits. You have to admit your vulnerability and get out of dodge while you can. You see, that's the image here of fleeing. 
This isn't like I'm fleeing because I'm a coward. This is fleeing because I recognize I am a sinner who is vulnerable to sin's temptation. And if I stick around, I will be destroyed. Christian, there have been many stronger, more mature in the word than you who thought they could play with sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. You better recognize your weakness and hightail it out of there. That's what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife tempted him. He didn't stick around to reason with her. He didn't say, oh, let's just talk about this a little bit. He left. He fled. He knew he was vulnerable and fled for his life. Now why? Why must the man of God flee? Joseph fled for his life because he understood that is exactly what was in the balance. Not his physical life, but his life with God. You stick around with sin. You let the, uh, the devil's gunning for you. You stick around to investigate and think you can manage. You don't flee temptation. The devil will have you for lunch. He will destroy your life with God. Joseph understood this. That's why he told Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39.9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He knew what was in the balance. The man of God knows sin will destroy his fellowship with God. The man of God then wisely flees destruction. The fool, the novice, the careless one passes on and is punished. But as we run from this destruction, we run from this temptation of sin's allurements, we must run to something else. Notice verse 11, Paul says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And I think you'll notice all of these six virtues he mentions are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They are virtues of none other than our Lord Jesus. And so the man of God must flee from sin's allurements, but he must secondly follow Christ's example. The command to pursue is in the present tense, which indicates the man of God must be continually following after Jesus. This is an, oh yeah, I've been there, done that. This is, a, this is your life's calling to continue pursuing these virtues of Christ. First, follow righteousness. You know, every society has its own standard of righteousness. What does Paul have in mind when he says, pursue, follow after righteousness? He's talking about the righteous standard of none other than God. You know, I've told my children, uh, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's a handy verse, Ephesians 6.1, for any parent. Obey your parents in the Lord, children, because it's the right thing to do. So I have to point out to my children, God doesn't say, obey daddy and mommy when it's easy, when it's most sensible to you, when it's the popular thing to do, when it makes you cool or hip, right? Or when, you know, your parents are offering you enough reward in return that obedience to them is actually advantageous for you. No, God says, obey your parents because it's the right thing to do. Wow. That's novel. I believe if pastors in this nation who claim to believe God's word would pursue what God says is right rather than pursuing what is popular, rather than pursuing what gets them financial gain and gets people into their congregation so they can fleece the sheep and make some money, if people like pastors who are claiming to be ministers of God and preach his word would just do what God says and preach what God says, we'd have a national revival. We'd have people everywhere, anywhere, repenting of sin and turning to God. Amazing. 
But how can we expect our children to do the right thing? How can we expect our neighbors to do the right thing? How can we expect the, the, the liberal governors and, and those without God in our nation, ruling our nation, to do the right thing when people who claim to believe the, the word of God won't do the right thing? Where's a man of God? Paul says, pursue righteousness and godliness. It's possible here, Paul is moving from the external to the internal. From our behavior of, of, of seeking to conform to God's righteous practices to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. Godliness. We might take pride in our own legalistic scheme of righteousness. I think all of us were, you know, we were raised in different ways, right? We, every sinner, every way, the Bible says every man is right in his own eyes. You could talk to just about anybody. You'll find they're righteous in their own eyes. They can always find another sinner on the block or somewhere that is worse than them. And we think we're righteous. Don't smoke. Don't chew. I don't run with those who do. I'm good. I don't do those things. I'm all right. Guess what? You're not judged by the standards of men. You're going to be judged by the standard of God. And he's a holy God. And he sees to the heart. And so the Bible is clear that the man of God not, must not be one who is just quick to follow after some form of righteousness. This isn't about dressing up and looking good for people. This isn't about acting the part. This is about an internal change of the heart. This is about being godly. God wants the real thing, godliness itself, the real deal. And godliness is mentioned more in this letter of 1 Timothy than is mentioned in any other book. In fact, over half the occurrences of the word godliness occur in the New Testament occur in this book, 1 Timothy. It's a major theme because God wants the man of God to be godly. That's not wearing a halo. That's not having a luminous glow. That's having a heart that's set on fire for God. It's said that John Wesley was once asked, what's your secret? You know who John Wesley was? Guy who stood up in the middle of fields back in the 18th century and, and people would throw things at him. He's preaching the gospel and thousands are being converted. I mean, this is exciting. This guy loves Jesus. Crowds, thousands and thousands of people will come out to hear John Wesley. Someone once asked John Wesley, what's your secret? Why do so many people come to hear you preach? Wesley answers something to this effect. I get alone with God in prayer. He sets me on fire. People come out to watch me burn. That's godliness. A heart set on fire by God, with God. That's God's man. Next, Paul says, pursue faith. Jesus would be another perfect example of faith. He trusted God perfectly to the very end, even through the humiliation and death of the cross. But faith must be our pursuit. And you know, that's not going to, just like it wasn't easy for Jesus, it's not going to be easy for you. It's not going to be easy for the man of God. Please understand, just because somebody is a pastor, just because somebody gives their life to the ministry, that doesn't mean it's easy. That means it's, they've got to deal with a lot more. And the man of God will find himself in situations where he must trust God. I think we, all, we could say that for all of us. Sometimes trusting God will seem impossible. But the man of God continually comes back to the Word of God, choosing to anchor his life not in feelings, not in self-help books, not in what Dr. Phyllis said or some TV evangelist, but on the Word of God and who God is in his unchanging character. If you want to be a man of God, you must pursue trust in God. Righteousness, godliness, faith, and what's he say next? Love. Love. And this 
isn't love in the way our culture uses that word. Love is love, right? It's my sexual attraction. No, that's not the word here. This is agape love. This is the selfless giving sort of love. This isn't going to be easy. This is hard. This is, again, what Jesus did for us, though, in giving his life. Jesus said the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Every pastor is a shepherd. Did you know the word pastor means shepherd? Pastor is a shepherd. The question is, is he a good shepherd or is he a hireling? Does he love his flock? What do you mean loves his flock? He loves his flock by gives, giving his life for his flock? Or is he only using the flock as a means to his own end? And by the way, loving the flock of God as a man of God, uh, Brother Kevin, I'm sure you know this, but loving God's flock means loving your family. Because that's a qualification. Your family is the front line of your flock. And you can't love God, you can't love his flock without loving your family. That means the man of God must be selflessly giving of himself to his wife, to his children, giving of himself to God's people. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and perseverance. The Christian life is a race. There's a starting line, there's a finish line, there's a prize to be won. And it's an uphill race that will demand everything you've got. And because God knows this and wants you to know this, he gives us some encouragement in Hebrews 12. He says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that is, men and women who've already completed this race, let us also, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then he says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus is the perfect example of endurance. You've got to follow his example. To finish the race, you'll need endurance just like Jesus. And as a man of God, being a pastor has to be one of the hardest jobs. Brother Kevin, someone said this, being a pastor is like death by a thousand paper cuts. He said that you're scrutinized and criticized from top to bottom, from stem to stern. You work for an invisible, perfect boss, and you're supposed to lead a ragtag gaggle of volunteers toward God's coming future. It's like herding cats, but harder. And I didn't say that, but it's true. There will be times when people will turn against you. There will be times when uh, people will stab you in the back. People you've poured your life into and done everything to tell them the truth will stab you in the back. No thanks. And there will be people that will not support you when you will believe that you need their help. And what you will need to do when you feel the world uh, is crushing you, as it were, is to cry to God and hear him say, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12.9. Any minister who's labored through seminary, you know, we know that raising a job and a family... Um, and doing seminary at the same time, that, that just means perseverance is essential. But here's the difference between laboring with uh, jobs and family and seminary, you know, in the wee hours of the night, uh, and the ministry. When it comes to the work of the ministry, it never stops. There's no time you really clock out. And what is at stake 
is of infinite value. It's the souls of men and women in the balance. Your family's on the line. Your faith is on the line. So for Brother Kevin, that's a challenge to you. For us as a church, that's a challenge to pray for your pastors. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance are all needful. The man of God must pursue them, but also gentleness. Gentleness. He says, and gentleness. The Greek word gentleness is related to humility. And to understand what Paul means by gentleness, just listen to what he wrote in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. The Lord's bondservant, that's the, the man of God, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So this gentleness, understand, is not skirting around God's truth. Oh, I just want to be so gentle with sinners, I'm just not going to tell them what God says. That's not gentleness. That's fraudulence. That's hypocrisy. That's withholding from people what they need to be saved. A knowledge of the truth. But Jesus told the, Jesus told the Pharisees, this is a great example, you're a brood of vipers. He said, how do you think you're going to escape the damnation of hell? Where's the gentleness in that? Well, he loved them. He bore patiently with them, preaching the truth, but he wasn't afraid to preach the truth. Jesus was gentle, he was humble, but Jesus was truthful. That's why his enemies put him on the cross. But the man of God isn't trying to win an argument. That's the point here. He's trying to win a soul. He's recognizing that even those who disagree with him, even most vehemently, and who persecute him and slander his name, are still human beings created in the image of our God, who need the love of God, and they need the truth of God, and he must pray and weep and labor if perhaps God will give those souls repentance and bring them to a knowledge of the truth. Christian, you cannot follow after everything. You've got to make some choices. You must deliberately pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. This isn't automatic. Kevin, when you said yes to Veronica, you understand you said no to every other woman in the world. And when you say yes to the calling of God on your life, you must realize you are saying no to anything that interferes or would undermine this calling of God on your life. This is a high and holy calling of God to be a man of God, to serve God's flock, to speak for God. So you must flee sin's allurements and follow after Christ's example. But this will not be possible without a fight. So thirdly, we see... In our text, the man of God must fight faith's good fight. Verse 12 begins, fight the good fight of faith. How must the man of God fight? Well, the word for fight here is agonizomai. From where we get a word to agonize. And Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 9 where he's describing the Christian life as this Olympic sort of competition. This competition in, in athletic games and, and this Word means for competition is an agonizing struggle for the prize. One of the most popular competitions in Paul's day was, was a, a, a competition that involved two combatants going up against each other in an all-out brawl. It was brutal. It was violent. In fact, the only two rules we know of were no biting and no eye gouging. All else goes. Imagine. And the first one to submit was the loser. So these two combatants literally agonized for the advantage. That's the picture. Paul's saying the man of God must go into the ring, he must fight, he must agonize, he must give it all he's got. 
That's the idea. And notice, for what must the man of God fight? Well, in translating the, the Greek text, I notice there's a definite article which doesn't show up in the New American Standard. It is in the ESV, but he, Paul literally says, fight the good fight of the faith. And I think that's instructive. I think that's instructive. Paul isn't talking about fighting for just any faith. He's talking about fighting for the historic body of Christian truth. The doctrines by which we are saved. You know, we fight for someone we love. We fight for our freedom. We fight for what we consider to be our rights. We fight for, you know, even things that don't matter. We fight for parking spaces. We fight over which team we believe is the best sporting team. We fight over how we're going to spend our money or all sorts of different silly opinions we have. But what about fighting for the faith? Fighting for the truth that God has revealed in Scripture. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that your sins have separated you from God? Do you believe that God has visited and, and spoken to this world and visited us in Jesus Christ? And that God, through Jesus, has satisfied God's justice for sins and that Jesus has risen, he's triumphed over sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe your sins can be forgiven by casting your faith, casting your dependence entirely on the Savior? Do you believe that? If you do, how much does that truth mean to you? Is it this faith for which you would give your life, or is it sort of something you get excited about on Sunday? Paul is saying, agonize for the faith. But perhaps someone's thinking, well, I love the gospel, Pastor, but I'm not really sure fighting for it is all that necessary. Why must the man of God fight? Because our adversary, our adversary who opposes God, will not let you faithfully serve God without a fight. He's not going to let you go along your merry way. No tyrant in history has ever given up his subjects without a fight. And the tyrant of tyrants, who is the devil, isn't going to let the man of God serve God without a fight. He hates the man of God just as he hates God. And so, like Christian and in Pilgrim's Progress, you better be prepared to do battle with Apollyon. You better expect that people will oppose you. They will uh, say all manner of unkind things about you and your family. They will slander you. They will do anything they can to attempt to hurt you because the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but there is an enemy working behind the scenes. And he will use people. He will use, pe he will use people that you love to try to hurt you. But you must fight the good fight. You must hold out. You must agonize for the faith. Paul charges young Timothy, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, and he says, take hold. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Grasp hold of the eternal life. By calling Timothy to take hold of the eternal life, Paul's not suggesting Timothy is still without eternal life. Oh, like, you got to... Get saved, Timothy. No, he, he says here, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. That's past tense. That is, you've already been called to this eternal life. And you've already made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But he's saying, because you've been called, because you've made this confession in front of the church of God, and, and people are watching you, and, and you've, you've made this profession public, he's saying it's time. It's time to take firm hold of this life that Christ has given you and called you to. Don't let go. Some commentators actually see this as a metaphor for taking hold of the prize. God is offering to you the crown right now. And he's saying, reach out and grab it. Don't let go of that. 
look, if God has called you, you come to recognize this, what are you waiting for? Paul would say in, in Philippians 3.12, Philippians 3.12, I haven't arrived, but I press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus has laid hold of me. That's beautiful. Jesus saved me for a purpose. He laid hold of my life, and so I laid hold of him. You know what's interesting here, and there's an application for all of us in all of this. Anyone could say, bless God, I'm saved. Bless God, I'm saved. I hear people say that all the time. So let me ask you, what have you been saved from? Are you saved from lying? Are you saved from lusting? Are you saved from wasting your life on worthless things? Are you saved from fear? Are you saved from cowardice to speak his name? Are you saved from bitterness? What are you saved from? Don't talk about salvation. Don't talk about Jesus Christ if he's not made any difference in your life because you're simply casting a bad light on our God. This is the heart and soul behind God's man. It's his devotion to God. He's fighting. We see him agonizing. And now here we see he's got this death grip, as it were, on this blessed life. He won't let go. He's got a grip on what Jesus has secured for him. So the man of God must flee sin's allurements, follow after Christ's example, fight faith's good fight, but fortly, and lastly, we see the man of God must be faithful to God's truth to the end. He must be faithful to God's truth. Verse 13, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives all things, life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. Do you see the situation here? Could not be more severe. <laughs> this is happening before the presence of God. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and in the presence of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession. How would we study the word of God if we believe Jesus was looking over our shoulder? How would you listen to the word of God right now? How would we preach the word of God if Jesus was sitting in the crowd? How would we pray and serve if we knew Jesus was standing by watching? Well, the man of God must realize it's not just the church bearing witness of his ministry and his preaching. It's not just the angels of heaven, but it's God Almighty. It's Jesus Christ bearing witness of his faithfulness and or unfaithfulness. I love how Paul mentions Jesus here. He's, it's like he's been there, done that. Did you get that? He says, he, Jesus, Christ Jesus testified the good confession to the end, even before Pontius Pilate. The point is, it's time for us to do so also. So Paul charges the man of God, verse 14, that you keep, and the word there is to guard, that you guard the commandment without stain or reproach. And I believe the commandment Paul describes here is the entire body of Christian truth that God has entrusted to Timothy. You see, how do we know that? Look down at verse 20, and he says, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Well, what did God entrust to Timothy? He entrusted Timothy with an understanding of his divine saving truth. And this same deposit of God's truth that he gave to Timothy, that's come down to us. That's come down to the man of God today. It's come down to you, the church, through the preaching of God's word. So how are we to guard God's truth? Well, the man of God must guard God's truth by being faithful. 
That's the idea of without this stain or, or reproach. Uncompromisingly, he must faithfully declare the truth that God has committed to him. Otherwise, he's not keeping it. He's not guarding what God has committed to him. That's why Paul charges Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word when it's being received, when it's not being received. You preach the word. You be faithful in the word of God. And notice, the man of God must be faithful to the end. Because Paul says, guard the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you'd say, well, Pastor, there was a time when I was really faithful. There was a time when I was really interested in the word of God. There was a time where I was really serving God. Okay, I'm going to try to be kind here, but I'm just going to be straight with you. No one gives a rip about how you started the race. What matters is where are you now? And how will you end? That's what matters in a race. Paul says, you guard the commandment until the end. And that is how God will evaluate his servants and reward them by how they end the race, not how they begin. Now the word God, when we talk about the man of God, we've been using that expression a lot, but the word God itself can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, right? So when Paul mentions the man of God, he wants you. He wants us to understand exactly what God he's talking about. So look at verse 15. Paul says, this appearing of our Lord Jesus, he, God, will bring about at the proper time. This is the God he's talking about. He who is the blessed and only, and I emphasize only, sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That is who's speaking. That is who the man of God is speaking for. That's who the man of God is serving. The only God. The one and only true, absolute, personal, infinite, eternal Lord. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Surely the world needs more men to speak for God. Men of God. But to speak for God, you must be a man of God. One must be a man of God to speak for God. And what's sad is the contemporary model for a pastor is very much some punk-like talk show host who's an entertainer with a great sense of humor. He can make you laugh. He can... Uh, inspire you with great stories. He can bring us to tears, perhaps. But there's just one problem. He's not faithfully preaching and teaching the Word of God. He's not speaking for God. He's not telling you what God has said, not in its entirety. He's a hireling. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't need a bag of jokes. It doesn't need some entertainer that couldn't just make the Hollywood cut so we had to settle for the ministry. Forget that. The church needs a man of God. The church needs a man who will give his life for the flock and will do so by faithfully preaching and ministering the word of God. We've seen four stipulations for the man of God. He must flee sin, follow Christ, fight for the faith, and be faithful to God's truth to the end. John Owen, the Puritan minister, said, A minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. We need a man of God. We pray that the Lord would raise up Brother Kevin 
and many more to follow in his steps and give us genuine men who would be genuine men of God to speak for God. Let's pray.